Amen. Good good morning, Connecting Fellowship. It is great to be before you one more again in the house of the Lord our God. Uh, today, this month, we'll be, we have been walking through the book of Proverbs by way of sermons and Bible studies from our clergy and daily devotionals from our congregation. And today, we'll be closing out our sermonic treatment for the rest of this month. And while we're closing the discussion from a churchwide campaign perspective, I want to, it is our hope rather, that the discussion continues among yourselves, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your homegirls, your homeboys, and any other person that you may come in contact with, uh, that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal to you all of the relevant ways that this word can infiltrate and influence your life. And my hope is that this word today will continue to add to this will add to that discussion. To begin, I think that working definitions of the word wisdom and knowledge would be helpful for guiding our discussion today. It was shared with me by my spiritual father, Bishop Seward Moton, years ago that knowledge is what you know. That's deep, right? It's, but somebody say that, thank God, that's not all he said. He then says that wisdom, but wisdom, Chris, is how to handle what you know. Years later, I would come to hear that same sentiment put this way. Knowledge is knowing that tomato, that a tomato is a fruit. Some of y'all were today years old when you found out that little piece of knowledge there. It's okay, don't be ashamed. We're always learning and growing in knowledge. But, but watch this. Wisdom is knowing that you don't put tomatoes in a fruit salad. <laughs> Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is how to handle what you know. That balances the playing field, does it not? Because the quality of our lives is not measured by how much we can accumulate, but how well we handle, manage, steward over, what has already been entrusted to us. Wisdom is knowledge stewardship. Some of us know a lot, but the current balance of our days has found us to be educated fools because we have mismanaged what we have accumulated through the years. Some of us know very little, but have placed ourselves in great life positions because our focus was not on how little we knew, but watch this, how well we could leverage what we did know to make God honoring decisions. So how then do we get this wisdom, this ability to handle well what we know about life in any given moment? The philosopher uh, Aristotle stated that knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And I would probably agree with him if we were our own beginning. If we were the ones that brought ourselves into our current stream of consciousness and awareness. Speaking of knowledge being what we know, we know this is not to be the case. We, we know that we are not the cause of ourselves. We, we know we had nothing to do with the genesis of our existence. We know that this life is a gift given by someone that's far greater than ourselves. So how then do we handle these pieces of knowledge. Where is wisdom? Since we know that wisdom 
that our beginning is inside ourselves, is outside ourselves, that it is in God, it is wise then to seek him, to revere him, to fear him. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It is in our acknowledgement of God and having respect, appreciation, and adoration, I'm sorry, let me say that again, and adoration for what he's all about that we can begin to make decisions that are in line with his nature, his character, and his purposes in the earth. And in today's text, we face with such a decision, an honestly, an honestly different, difficult decision, a trying decision. Let's go to Proverbs 25th chapter, the 21st to the 22nd verse. And if you're able, wherever you are, and then if you're in the bathroom, if you're on the kitchen or you're sitting on the bed, just go ahead and give me a, get, get yourself some exercise and stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. And it reads as thus. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The word of God for the people of God, blessed be the name of the Lord our God. You may be seated in the presence of God. I want to tag this message Try Jesus, not me. I'm just going to be honest with you in this moment, and I hope you stay along for the rest of the journey. I personally have not had a need to talk about politicians in my sermons, especially in the past four years. But in this instance, I have found it hard to pray for the president during his bout with COVID-19. Am I the only one that's felt this way no. this past couple of weeks? If not, I mean, it's it's fine. I, I'm okay with standing alone in my truth. Honesty, this, as they say, is good for the soul, but bad for your reputation. But seeing as though I don't care about my reputation, I'm just going to be honest. And if you feel differently about the president, I hope you're still there. And that, and that you're able to hang on to the end of this message. I mean, I wasn't trying to wish for his death, but I definitely wasn't actively praying for his recovery either. My stance was, Lord, have your way. I want what you want. Do what you will. Not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless, because I'm going to be honest, there was an internal conflict within me that prevented me from praying for this person who apparently may seem to be in need, who I have perceived as an enemy of the people. How do I pray for such a person, especially when he seems to have received the direct result of his lack of precautions for a deadly disease? I struggle with this. So I said very little, neither in celebration or in sorrow, neither in encouragement or in a vindicated, I told you so kind of attitude. I did nothing. But then I came across this proverb, and as I began to let it speak to me, it spoke to me. 
And it pushed me to rethink just how unconditional God's love really is. And if you're going to be honest with me today, as much as we say that we understand that we, uh, that we receive God's unconditional love, it is pivotal moments like these that come up to teach us just how much more we have to learn about God. How many more people in our lives have we yet to receive God's unconditional love from us? Because we haven't fully grasped that Jesus died for them too. How many grudges have we held? Relationships left unmended and unreconciled because we failed to handle well our knowledge of God's love and his intent for how his people are to behave towards other human beings. Allow me to present the words of Jesus. He's welcome to be, to be quoted in this discussion who not only came to die to save us from our sins, but also to be an example for how humanity is to operate in the earth. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, when you hear those words, you may get a sense that Jesus is operating with another set of facts about his enemies. But in his but in reality, he's handling his knowledge about God in a way that allows him to view differently those who would oppose him. And he invites us to do the same. It's impressing upon us, and that's what this text is lifting up for our consideration today. It's impressing upon us to consider the reality that those who oppose us are not our opposition. But they are rather opportunities for us to be agents in God's mission to reconcile the world back to him. Opportunities to try the wisdom of Jesus and not our own. Opportunities to try Jesus, not us. So how do we shift our mindset on our perceived opposition? I'm, I'm glad you asked. You are an intelligent and smart audience. I feel you through the virtual chat. We have to keep in mind two things. Number one, that extending kindness to those who oppose us is our responsibility. And first, we're going to look at the primary nature of that responsibility. Verse 21 gives us no room to negotiate on the matter. It is its imperative nature puts, us, puts the proverbial ball in our court. Our burden to fulfill. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. The writer says it as if it's a no-brainer. No equivocation necessary. It's simple. So where is the complication, you ask? What causes real life to feel like doing calculus? in the face of these kinds of verses that seem to offer an arithmetic outlook on life. This goes back then to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, if you recall, ate disobediently from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before then, they only knew only good, God. And that's all they really, truly needed to know. That was their only and primary responsibility. Life was simple. 
unto the one who was evil in the form of a serpent, in the form of a snake, seduced them into doing the opposite of what good told them to do. In that moment of temptation, they were no longer satisfied with just knowing and being good. They wanted to be more. They wanted to be judges. Well, you can see the problem here because God is the only one that knows enough to be judged. He's the only one that knows enough to hand out rewards and punishment according to his righteous assessment of a person's actions. So, Adam and Eve attempted to take God's place in their lives in the garden. And the world has been complicated ever since. And when I realized this, man, this hit me hard. It, it was like God was saying, Chris, you only have one primary responsibility. Somebody said, you only have one job. One job. Be good. Stop being judged. And it was then that I understood the reason for this verse's simplicity on the matter. Because this verse assumes that the reader knows his place. And so I want you to face your distance neighbor. If you don't want to face them, email them, text them, send them a post-it, and tell them, know your place. Be good. That's our primary responsibility. No matter what evil is facing you, you be good. No matter what negativity is being bowled down your alley, you be like the good pen and you remain standing. Don't be bowled over by stooping down to the level of foolishness that you have received. The Apostle Paul says these words. He says it plainly after referencing these verses in Romans 12. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, you know, of course, our, our favorite presidential family, the Obamas, they say, when they go low, we go high. And I know that it gets played out, but but it, it works if you try it. But not only are we are to consider the primary nature of our responsibility, as we reorient our thinking on our opposition, let's also consider the priestly nature of our responsibility. Verse 22 begins with, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This intrigued me, y'all. So I, I looked up other instances of the phrase burning coals in the Bible. And in almost all cases, burning coals were associated with judgment, with purification, and also atonement. You see this clearly in Isaiah, the sixth chapter and the sixth verse. In Isaiah's version, when one of the seraphim had a live coal in his hand from the altar and placed it on his lips saying, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Seraphim are, if you don't know already, they are heavenly creatures that are charged with beholding the presence of God. Their function, by the way, is similar to that of the priests in the Old Testament temple. Priests are the ones that are handling and dealing with coals in the temple. 
Leviticus 16 chapter in the 12th verse gives us an instance of where Aaron the high priest was to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. And what's behind the curtain, you may ask? Well, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the very presence of God resided, where only the high priest could go behind and behold the Shekinah glory that was within. Now, what do we make of all this? This. When I am kind to those who oppose me, I, as part of the royal priesthood, I am extending the presence of God to my opposition. And God will judge them or purify and atone their past offenses towards me based on their response to my kindness. I don't have to fight. I don't have to put up a defense. I don't have to hold a grudge. All I have to do is give it over to God and he will make it straight. Just like Jesus did for us. Even while we were yet disobedient and seeking our own way, creating hell in the lives of ourselves and others, opposing him at every turn, he loved us anyway, came to earth, lived among us, healed and delivered us from our ailments and diseases, and suffered and died, and then rose on the third day just for us. And now God will either judge us or purify and atone us based on our response to that supreme loving kindness. Jesus, the high priest, heaped burning coals on our head. And now we, as the apostle Peter tells us, calls us the royal priesthood, are called to do the same. So as a primary nature to our responsibility, we must be good. There's a priestly nature to our responsibility. But thirdly, there is a preemptive or proactive nature to our responsibility. To understand this nature, we have to not only look at the text, but we have to look at what it doesn't say. The text does not say, give your enemy something to drink, eat or drink when they approach you. If common sense would prevail in this discussion, we understand that they are our enemy. And they consider you their enemy. And more often than not, they will never approach you to meet their need. Rather, the text suggests that when you see the need of your opposition, you supply it. No questions asked. You give them bread when you see they need bread. You give them water when, they, when you see they need water. You call them when they have lost a loved one. You attend to them and pray for them when, they're, when you see they're sick. You help them out when you see they lost their job. You offer shelter when you see they're out on the street. You call and encourage them when you see they have been publicly humiliated and embarrassed and shamed. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Because gates only prevail when they are successful at keeping stuff out. But when we are preemptive with our kindness, we storm the gates of hell and plant the seed of God in the lives of our opposition. And God is not asking us to do what he has not already done. Romans 5 and 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. God didn't wait until we asked him to save us. God went on the offensive. While we were still enjoying our self-destruction, he preemptively provided the remedy. And I need somebody that's able to give God some praise for the miracle that he had preemptively provided in your life. Because he didn't have to do it, but he did. So, extending kindness to those who oppose us is our responsibility. We must not take it lightly. There is a primary priestly and preemptive nature to our responsibility. And in the carrying out of our responsibility, we will realize that extending kindness to those who oppose us is also our reward. Verse 22 says, and the Lord will reward you. It's another chapter in uh, Proverbs that contains this verse, and it says, those who are kind benefits themselves, but the cruel bring ruin upon themselves. Another translation says that your kindness will reward you, but your cruelty will destroy you. And what is this reward? I'm glad you asked. Because I don't know, for, for sure. I mean, the text doesn't really give us much. But if I had to take a shot in the light, I would, I would argue, Elder, that a strong contender would be peace. The peace that is not simply the absence of anxiety, but the presence of order. The peace that comes when I operate in the simplicity of my responsibility, the peace that comes when I stay in my lane and be good and leave the judging to God, the peace that comes when I don't feel the need to give anybody what they deserve, the peace that comes when I relinquish any right I feel I have to be unforgiving, to be bitter, to be resentful, to be vindictive, to be vengeful, It is the peace that gives us the freedom to love God the way God intended those who would oppose us. Because we know that those who oppose us are not our opposition, but are rather opportunities for us to be agents in God's mission to reconcile the world back to him. Opportunities to try Jesus, not us. Won't you try his way today? Amen, amen, and amen. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you how how it has penetrated all of our lives today. Thank you for your Holy Ghost. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that that when we allow him to hear, he shows us the many ways that your word can influence and infiltrate our lives. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us your higher way, your way of doing things, God. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to realize that what matters has not changed, that you still are not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, God, we thank you for the privilege. We thank you for the honor. We thank you for the responsibility that you have entrusted to us, this ministry of reconciliation. And so, God, forgive us for moments that we've, when we felt we had a right to withhold 
any level of kindness from those who we thought were our enemies. God, your word says, your servant says, Paul, through the word that said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against those who are in high places, God. And so God, help us, Father God, to do well with one another, to treat one another even, even better than we have treated them in the past because we have received your kindness and your favor and your goodness and your faithfulness and your justice and your peace towards us. Not to keep it for ourselves, not to be a, a reservoir of blessing, but to be a conduit of your goodness to others. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.